for a lot of people, resistance to Christianity or the idea of you know, following Jesus revolves around this question, is it true? And you know, maybe that's you this morning. And if you don't believe the story of Jesus and the story of Christianity is true, you probably have a good reason in your mind not to believe. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I, hopefully you're a smart person. If, and if you don't believe, you have reasons that you don't believe, right? And so for a lot of people, this is kind of the question that they wrestle with. Is, is this even true? I, have, I mean, did Jesus even exist? And, or did he do all those things that we've heard about him? And I really love talking about this, especially the it part. Is it true? Uh, because the question that you have to wrestle with and you have to wrestle to the ground is, you know, what is the it? What is it that you think you have to embrace um, in order to be a follower of Jesus? And for many people, I, I think the it is the Bible. And, and really, that's unfortunate because th there were tens of thousands of believers and followers of Jesus before there was even really what we call the Bible today, right? So the it that you should wrestle with is not, is it the Bible? It's, it's, it's a different it. So I hope that's not your it because just so you know, and then we'll move on. And, but this is a big deal, especially if you've have walked away from faith. The Bible did not create Christianity. It's really the other way around, but that's a, that's a subject for another day. And more and more in our culture, the question isn't so much, is it true? But the question is, is it good? Is Christianity good? Even if it is true, is it good? Even if it's partially true, is it good? Is Christianity good for society? Is Christianity good for humanity? Is Christianity good for you know, our children? Is Christianity good for you? Is it good for me? Um, is it dangerous? Is it harmful? Should we just dispense with all you know, religion? Because you've probably heard it somewhere said in conversation or, or on the screens or all religion is harmful, you know, including the message of Jesus um, and including the message of Christianity. And so now to, to kind of get us focused on where we're going for this series, this is true of us when we hear uh, news that's not good. When you hear news that is not good, what do you do? You, don't you hope that it's not true? Right? You, you, I mean, that's just the human nature. When you hear something that's not good, you hope it's not true. And, and so when you find out that, you know, Netflix is doubling their monthly subscription weight, which is probably likely true, um, but we're, we're like, well, I hope that's not true. Right? And, and, and so then you, you've got to find out if it's true or if we hear maybe that Amazon is going back to just selling books. Anybody remember that day? <laughs> um, which, which means that we have to go, some of us, it means we have to get out of our pajamas and go back to the mall, right? And so that's not good news for those of us who are accustomed to buying online. If you have a retail store, it's, then it's like the best news ever. But, but for most of us, who are in the pajamas, that's not, a, that's not good news. So we hope it's not true. But when you hear news that's not good news, you hope it's not true. But the opposite is true as well. And, right? When you hear good news, you hope it is true. And I, I mean, imagine this. What if we found out that processed sugar extends life expectancy? That would be good news Thanksgiving week. I mean, is that not like the best news ever? And that we can go back to sugar. Frosted flakes, like, you know, flakes, I can eat them again. And um, we can put the word sugar back on the cereal boxes. I mean, we made this up, but it might, it might be the best clickbait ever in the history of clickbait, right? And, and because you would click on that, and I would click on that. Processed sugar extends 
life expectancy. Wait, what? <laughs> and, and when you saw that, most of us, not all of us, but most of us, if we were honest, that would be good news. It's like, what do you mean I can eat whatever I want, right? And so you would hope that it's true. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be true, and the fact that you hope it's true doesn't make it true. And to be clear, the fact that we call the message of Jesus Christ good news doesn't make it true. My point is simply this. When you hear something that's good, or you hear about something that's good, what do you do? You hope it's true, you lean in. That's human nature. We hope it's good, and if we hear it, it's good, we hope it's true, we lean in. So when the announcement of Jesus' birth was first announced, it was actually described on one day, uh, this is so interesting, it was described as, as day one as good news of great joy. Good news and great joy. And then here's the surprise. Here's, here's the part that I don't think anybody you know, would have made up because the world was too divided, especially in Judea and in, in, in Galilee and in this particular part of the world. But the angel announced that there would be good news of great joy. And then here's the kicker. Here's the surprise for all people. That the message of Jesus, and they didn't, they didn't even know what the message of Jesus was yet, would be good news, and it would spark joy for all people. The Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Samaritans, the Sumerians, and anybody who'd ever lived, that this message was so good, it would be good news of great joy for all people. And so, so here's the question. Is it? And was it? And if so, Why? And so back to what I said originally, when you hear good news, you hope that it's true. And you, and you may find that it's not true, but you hope that it's true. You have this hope, this internal hope. When you hear good news, you lean in. And if people lean into good news, why isn't everybody in the world leaning in? Why isn't everybody in our community, why isn't everybody in our nation leaning and hoping that the good news of Jesus is true? Even if they decided at the end of the day, it's not true. In fact, the original version of Jesus' story, you know, was not what we call today the Bible. The original version of the good news was actually called the gospel. And so the gospel comes from two old English words, God and spell. And some of you know about this. God spell uh, means good story. And, and so that when you, that when, when they decided, you know, what to call this, they said, we call it good news. What else would we call it? Right? We call it the gospel. You know it because it's a good story. And then in their, their Greek New Testament, uh, the original language here, it's Juan Galeon, and it's the Greek word, and it's translated in our English Bible to say good news. And so from the very beginning, and don't miss this, even if you've walked away or you're thinking about walking away, if you're reaching for the doorknob, this is amazing. In the first century, at the epicenter of the um, action and the activity, when, when the whole idea first touched down on planet Earth and it intersected with us, it was considered such good news for all people that they named it Good news. <laughs> it's not necessarily very original. The, the, you know, the best that we could come up with as the best descriptor is this is just good news and great joy for all people. That's the message of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. That was it. And so the claims of Jesus caught on kind of sandwiched between the Roman Empire and the temple and it caught on anyway. And, and, and here's why. 
Because when you hear something that you consider good news, you lean in before you even know if it's true, before you determine it's false. But initially you lean in, right? And people were leaning in. And, and, and one of the things, in fact, maybe the thing that breaks my heart more than anything is that so many people are leaning away in our culture from the message of Jesus because somehow they've come to the conclusion that it's not good. Uh, it's, and it's not their fault. In fact, if you're one of those people, let me say that it's, it's not your fault because you've probably bumped into, you ran into, you did business with, uh, you went to school with, you were raised by some people um, who carried a version of the faith and a version of you know, what we call Christianity, a version of the message of Jesus, and you've determined somewhere along the way that it's not good news. You know, I, I don't even you know, care if it's true. This is not good news. I don't wanna live my life this way. But you should know because you have, this, you have to decide for yourself the original news and the initial news, it was so good and it was compelling. And um, in fact, Luke, who recorded the, the message in the life of Jesus, he records Jesus saying something so interesting. It's become one of my favorite things that Jesus said. He says, the law and the prophets, and that's what we call the Old Testament in the first century, okay? They didn't call it the Old Testament because it wasn't old anything. Um, it was the Hebrew Bible, right? It was the Jewish um, text. And so it was their sacred scripture, but they, but they called it the law and the prophets. And so Jesus said the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, speaking of John the Baptist, but the law and the prophets were not good news of great joy for all people. Um, the law and the prophets, or, or what we call our Old Testament, was good news for the ancient Hebrew people who had just come out of slavery, and they needed moral and civil and judicial and ceremonial law to live by, right? And so they needed something that helped them understand who Yahweh was. And um, the law and the prophets was great news of great joy for the ancient Hebrew people, um, but it was not good news of great joy for the entire world. So with the coming of Jesus, there was this kind of a, it was this amazing transition. And uh, unfortunately, part of the reason I think sometimes the good news didn't sound like uh, such good news is that we mix the old and the new inappropriately. So uh, listen to what Jesus said. He says, the law and the prophets had been proclaimed up until the time of John the Baptist when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history, okay? And then he said, but since that time, so in, in other words, since the time that I've stepped into this world and uh, began to teach the good news of the kingdom of God or the values of the kingdom of God and, and, and what God is truly like and you know, how God truly loves and how God views mankind and, and how God wants to be viewed by, by mankind and, and how God wants the, the human race to treat each other. You know, all of this, these brand new values, this, these kingdom values that we just finished going through you know, in, in Matthew, this brand new system, this kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is leaning toward and leaning into and even fighting to get in. It says in this translation, forcing their way into. And his point was simply this, that when people understand what I'm saying and what God is offering, 
they might not be convinced it's true, but when they hear the message, the way the message should be preached, and when they understand what I've come to offer, and when they understand what God is like, what my Father God is like, when they understand that I am as close to understanding what God is like, you know, as they'll ever get close to on the planet Earth, that I'm the most perfect possible picture of who he is, when people understand this, they are going to lean in and they're gonna want it to be true. So if, if, if the life and the teaching and the message of Jesus doesn't strike you as good news, perhaps that's because the version that you grew up with or maybe the version that you walked away from or the, the version that you're thinking about walking away from wasn't the original version. It wasn't the good news because the original version was compelling. The, the original version was worth telling. And this is amazing. And again, we don't think in these terms because of the way the Bible is presented to us or, or, or the way we were brought up with the Bible. But this is amazing. It, in the first century, very few people had uh, their stories told. In fact, um, in, in the first century, the second century, third century, and in the previous centuries, very people had their stories documented at all because most people couldn't read. They couldn't read and writing was expensive and um, you know, writing utensils were expensive. And so the only way that you got your story told was you had to be wealthy. And if you were wealthy, you had to hire a scribe to record the events of your life. So consequently, in ancient times, the only stories of people that we know and that we hear about are famous rich people because they paid to have somebody write their story. And then, even then, they would edit it and make sure that it made them look good, right? And so the, the fact, this is amazing, the fact that we have an account of the life of Jesus is just incredible. It really is because he was a nobody. He was a day laborer from Galilee. And when his story was written, you know, he wasn't even there. He was gone. He, he wasn't around to pay, you know, you know, someone to write his story when this was copied and, and copied and copied and copied. And Luke, at the very beginning of the account of Jesus, the very first word, he says something that is so historically significant and so easily overlooked. Um, and the very first word of his gospel, he says something that should stop everybody in their tracks. This is what he says. And here's, he says many. Many, many is the first word of the gospel of Luke, many. Now, question, quick question, don't answer out loud. How many is many? <laughs> the, the answer is it depends on what you're counting, right? Because uh, if it's children, that's one thing. If it's stars in the sky, that's something else, right? But baseball collection, that's something else. Uh, but how many is many? No matter what you're counting, for the most part, unless it's, you know, your children, four isn't really that many. How many is many? I don't know. But listen to what Luke says from the first century. This, this is what he says. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And so this is astounding. And Luke says, look, I'm about to give you an account of the life of Jesus, but you need to know that my account is not the only one, and neither is Mark, and neither is John's, and neither is Matthew's. Um, we're not the only one for, for the, you know, many people have endeavored to draw up an account of the things that have happened or been fulfilled among us. So now, quick question. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad about themselves. We live in the modern time, though, right? And everybody can write a novel. 
everybody can write a book, everybody can write a story, it's cheap to write. Um, creating a novel or a story or recording somebody's life is easy and it's so inexpensive, right? We can just hit a publish button. But, but let me um, ask you this, how many of you know people who undertake that challenge to drop an account of your life? Uh, you know, I, I do not, for me. It's, you know, and it is cheap. And it, it'd be so easy for somebody to just drop an account of your life and, and you're all wonderful people. You know, you're, you're good people. But there aren't gonna be a whole bunch of people trying to make sure that they get all the details of our life written down and documented, right? So this, there's a, this is a question to kind of just wrestle to the ground. This is where faith begins. This is the thing that maybe, you know, it's so easy to overlook. Why? Why so many? Why, are, why do so many people try to document the life of a dead man? Why do, why do um, you know, they spend so much time and energy and money documenting the life of someone who had, in their earthly experience, come and gone, who was a nobody from nowhere, in their, again, in their experience, who traveled maybe 20 to 35 miles from home, who didn't write anything, right? He, 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 was, he was only in the public eye for, you know, at large for three, maybe four years. And, and the answer is this, because in the first century, in the land of Judea, something significant happened. And the reason it was documented by so many is because something good also happened. And I don't know, you know what your version of Christianity is, but the original version, it was all good. Uh, it was all good. It was so good that people wanted it to be true. They were leaning in before they were even convinced it was true. Here's what Luke goes on to say. He says, just as they were handed down to us by those who uh, were from uh, the first eyewitnesses and services, uh, servants of the word. These are eyewitness accounts is what he's saying. Um, this isn't just me trying to cobble together some, some stories that I've heard. Uh, but he says, with this in mind, here is his introduction to the gospel. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, in other words, I'm not, I'm not just doing this from memory, I'm, 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 I'm talking to everybody I can who was an eyewitness or a friend of an eyewitness who was there, who knew somebody who was there, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, meaning the beginning of Jesus' life, and then he says this, I too, why I too? Because I'm not the only one that's doing this, I too decided, in addition to all these other people, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And we don't know who Theophilus was, but our, our, our best guess is that he was a wealthy, curious follower of Jesus, you know, and that he had heard these teachings of Jesus. He became a Jesus follower. He knew somebody who had seen the resurrected Jesus perhaps. And so he was all in, but he wanted to understand the story and he wanted to know the story from the beginning all the way up to, you know, the end. And so he said to Luke, Luke, would you spend uh, your time and use your skills uh, to investigate and put together an orderly account? And, but listen to what Luke says to Theophilus. He says, the reason I'm doing this for you and the reason he did this for you and for me was so that, this is so wonderful, so that you may know the certainty so that you would be secure in your knowledge of the things that you have been taught. 
You have, you have been taught the life and the message of Jesus, but I want you to have confidence in what you've been taught. So I'm, I'm going to put together an orderly account for you. And so little did he know that this account, you know, that he was writing for this single individual would be one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus that would survive antiquity. You know, so isn't that amazing? Um, you know, many, it says, many, 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 many. Why was this story worth telling? The story was worth telling because it was good. The story was worth telling because people were leaning into it. And so now the angels were the first ones to announce that it was good, but it wasn't until Jesus stepped um, into the outer banks of the Jordan River as a, as a full-grown adult that the message became good for the people who knew Jesus. And so that's when people experienced the goodness of this message for the very first time. Okay, so here's a question we're gonna continue to ask today, this morning. How good was this message? It was real good. It was all good. It was, it was so good that forgiveness, and perhaps this is the... This is what first intersects, you know, with the most of our lives. If you're a Jesus follower, that forgiveness of sin, you know, would be announced ahead of time that you could ask God for forgiveness and be forgiven. You know, you didn't have to sacrifice any more animals, <laughs> you know, and, and you didn't have to work for it. And you didn't have to work through it. Not only was this good news, this was brand new news. And, and so this was also disturbing news for some too. This made the entire temple system in Jerusalem antiquated, suddenly there was no need for the things that they'd given their lives to and built their entire lives around. And so in fact, it's Luke who tells a story that, you know, you perhaps, you know, have heard if you've grown up in church and he's, that Jesus is teaching one day and he's in this wealthy person's house and it's, it's a big home and there's a living room or perhaps the biggest room in the, whatever the biggest room in the house was, it was full of people and there were people in the next room and there were people in the windows and there were people outside, um, you know, just straining to hear the words of Jesus because wherever Jesus went and wherever Jesus taught, there were crowds. There were crowds in almost every chapter in the book of Mark. There are crowds everywhere that Jesus goes. And because his teaching was so good, unique, uh, and it was so new. And people wanted to believe that he was who he claimed to be. And, and people wanted to believe that God was the way that you know, Jesus presented God to be. And so while he's teaching, they hear the noise up on the roof. Remember the story? Uh, and they, they look up. But he keeps on teaching and there's more noise and more noise. And then there's kind of mortar falling down around them, right? And then suddenly there's this ray of light that pierces the, the dark room where he's teaching. And then another ray of light and then another ray of light. They look up and there's a face. And Jesus looks up and he says, do you not know that we have an 11 o'clock service? You know, come back in an hour. Now, <laughs> there wasn't that. You know, you know now there's a face, and suddenly, you know, there's, there's more than one person out there that they're seeing up, up, in the, up, in, up in the roof and they're taking the tiles off the roof of the house. I mean, of course, the homeowner's like, man, I'm never hosting you know, a party like this before. I mean, they turn the house up, right? And, and then the next thing you know, the, the brightness is, is covered. It's, it's dark again and they look up and it looks like they have some sort of hammock and they're lowering, lowering this hammock down and they, they get to the floor and they make space and there's a guy laying in there. And remember this, it's, it's quiet 
And in this crowd, in the living room, are some Pharisees and some teachers of the law that have come from Jerusalem because they're shadowing Jesus to listen to what this strange rabbi has to say. Because he's teaching things no one's ever taught before. And uh, he's making promises about God that are in conflict with the way that they viewed God. And, and, and so the way that they had taught that God really was. And so, in, in fact, one of the reasons that maybe you walked away from faith is because somebody presented God to you in a way that's different from the God that Jesus was presenting to these followers in this room on that day. And so Jesus looked down at the man and he smiles. He looks at him and then he says the strangest thing. He says, sir, your sins are forgiven. To which, you know, the, the guy looked at Jesus and, and you know, thought, that's not why I'm here. Sir, your sins are forgiven. He hadn't even asked. He hadn't even asked about that. And, and the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they went berserk. I mean, you know, you can teach fun stories and cool parables and, and do all of that. And none of us really understand them anyway. That's fine. But you can't forgive sin. Only God can do that. Only God can forgive sin, to which Jesus says, that's true, but who can heal a paralyzed man other than God? <laughs> and then Jesus says, says this to you, and he says this to me, and he says this to his audience, and Luke records this for all generations. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Yeah, and, and to which the Pharisees, the teachers, the law, they're sort of, but we have a whole system for that. We've devised it. We've put it together. We've, we have this entire temple built for that. You know, and we have ceremonial law for that. And, and we have a sophisticated system that people have to work through in order to get forgiveness. You can't just announce that somebody is forgiven, but he did. <laughs> he did. And to punctuate his authority, he said to this young man, pick up your mat and walk. And people were in awe. This was good news. This was good news. This was new news. And this is the good news for you. And this is good news for me. It's, it's all good. See, when it comes to sin, you know, there's, there's a lot of in our culture, you know, who will even say, you know, well, I, I just don't do guilt or shame, right? And they don't want to deal with sin. And I get it. Maybe, maybe you said the same thing. And I'm, I'm not really being critical. I'm not even trying to be sarcastic. It's just that there's a mentality that's like, you know, I just kind of reject those categories. I, and I can understand why. But the reason that you reject those categories is perhaps you've never understood what Jesus said sin is. And, and sin isn't offending an, an almighty, you know, invisible God that has a standard that you can't meet. That's not what sin is. You know, Jesus was so specific when he talked about this, and we, we tend to make it so um, complicated, but it, that when you hurt another person that God loves, that would be you know, everyone that you've ever met. That when you sin against people who are made in the image of God, that you sin against God. And all of us have sinned, right? We've, all of us have stolen. All of us have, have taken credit for things that we shouldn't take credit for. All of us have dishonored. All of us have disrespected. All of us fall short. Um, you know, get this. All of us fall short of our own standards that we set for ourselves, much less the standard of other people, <laughs> much less the standard of a God who loves the people that you've offended. And Jesus had claimed the ability to forgive your sin and make you right with God. So that's good news. And so it got even better than that. Say, how good? Say, how good? How good? 
How good was it? Yeah, this good. Get this. It's all good. <laughs> According to Jesus, anybody, I mean, no other world religion offers this. Nobody offers this, but according to Jesus, anybody, regardless of their starting point, regardless of what they know, get this, regardless of what they believe and regardless of what they believe about Jesus, anybody can make a step and choose to take a step to follow Jesus from where they are right now. Everyone is invited to take a step to follow Jesus. This is incredible news, and we know this because Luke, once again, records this for us. Jesus and his guys come to this big intersection, you know, of what they would consider a highway. It wasn't really a highway like we think of a highway. Think of it like a toll booth. You know, we, we know what those are. Um, but instead of a plastic arm, it was a Roman spear. And um, everybody had to stop and pay the toll. And... The guy collecting the toll in Luke's account is named Levi. He's a, he's a tax collector, and a lot of us know the reputation of tax collectors in the, in the first century. If you don't, they, they didn't have any friends. They, uh, you know, other than other tax collectors and other people who weren't allowed into the temple or anywhere even close to the temple, they were ceremoniously <laughs> unclean in the system that they were living in. And God had put them on the outskirts of, of anything that would ever bless or say yes to love. And it was over in their mind for them. You know, they better enjoy this life because if there's an afterlife, it's not going to be good for them. That's what's in their minds. That's Levi. And Jesus walks up to Levi and he says, Levi, follow me. Follow me. And Levi, staring in disbelief, is like, you want me to follow you? You're a rabbi. I see, I see your robe. I see your followers. In fact, I see that your, your followers are giving me an evil look. Like, you're kidding. He's not going to be a part of our thing, is he? You want me to follow you? Come on. Jesus, look, no rabbi has ever invited me to follow. In fact, you know how the rabbis talk about me. You know that they, they use me in their sermons. I'm a negative sermon illustration. <laughs> be careful. You'll grow up and be like Levi. You've got to be careful or you'll grow up and be a tax collector. I'm the worst of the worst. And besides, you know what I'm up to because look, I'm doing it. And you want me to follow you? Isn't that good news? That regardless of how low you go or how far you wander or how deep of a pit that you've dug. And you've become your own worst enemy that Jesus says you can start right here. And follow me. And then the real surprising story, according to Luke and the other gospel writers, is that Levi, he gets upset. You know, all right, I'll follow you. Where are we going? And remember what Jesus said? He said, we're going to go to your house. And all the other apostles are like, you know, I'm not going to go to his house, okay? Um, his house has tax collector cooties, and, you know, we can't go in there. If you go to his house, we're, not, we're, going, to be, we're going to be unclean. We're going to be considered unclean. We'll never be able to go in the temple again. And Jesus is like, just come on, we're going to go to his house. And they get to his house. And, and it's a bunch of other people like Levi. And the Pharisees are out, you know, like in the cul-de-sac because they don't even want to step in the yard. <laughs> they send a message in 
to Jesus, like, what in the world are you doing? You're disrupting everything. You say that you're a man sent from God, but this isn't how God operates. And Jesus just smiles and he sent a message back out and he said, get out there and he sends a messenger, get out there and tell them that I've not come for the (laughs) self-righteous. Oh man, ouch. I've I've, I've not come for the people that think they've never fallen short, even of their own standard. I've not come for the perfect people. I've not come for the people that get it right every time. I've not come for the people that don't do guilt and don't do shame and don't do sin. I've come for the honest people, the people that know there's a standard out there that they don't live up to and they don't even know where the standard came from. (laughs) And the reason they know there's a standard that they're accountable to is even though they don't live up to that standard is, hey, they hold everybody else up to a standard of their own making. And we're going to talk about that next week. Um, Isn't it interesting that thieves hate to be stolen from? And, you know, unfaithful people hate to be cheated on. Liars hate to be lied to. Because we know. And Jesus said, I've come for the people who know that they're not all that good. That they could, you know, be better. That's the good news. But listen to this next part. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Do you know what that means? This, is, this might be the best news of all. I've come to call them to see the entire world in a different way. Follow me. To change their thinking even about themselves. To change their thinking, as we'll see in a moment, about God. To change their thinking about the people around them. To change their thinking about everything and to see themselves in a way that allows them to connect with Father God, their heavenly Father, and change them from the inside out. That's good news. Because here's what I know about you, even if we've never met, is you've tried to change yourself, right? You've tried, and it's virtually impossible. This this was the invitation of Jesus the Savior, and this is why people leaned in. Because they hoped there was something behind these words. It was good. Say, how good? How good was it? It just kept on getting better. It was a whole new level of good, a stop and stare good, a drop your jaw good because Jesus followers were not only invited to be good, and unfortunately, this is where the message of Christianity started for way too many people. You know, we need to be good, and I can't be that good, and the people claim to be that good, they're not even that good, they're hypocrites, and I can't be a part of that. But Jesus didn't stop there. In fact, Jesus really didn't even start there. That's why Levi could follow him. Jesus called his followers not to simply be good, but to do good. And it's not the usual, but it's not in the usual way. Everybody does good. Here's what he said. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be like me, if you're going to be someone that lives their lives in a way that embraces these kingdom values that I'm talking about because I've come to introduce the kingdom of God to earth, it's a brand new kind of kingdom. It's not a geographical kingdom. It's a kingdom of conscience. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of the soul. It's a kingdom of the spirit. And here's how it operates. I want you to do good, but I want you to do good to those who hate you. I want you to pray for those who mistreat you. Who does that? This is what they would say when Jesus said that. Who does that? Then Jesus says, hang on because you're about to learn something about God, your father, that maybe no one has ever told you before. He said, if you do good to those who are good to you, I mean, that's just average, everybody does that. That's so unremarkable. 
He says, what credit is that to you? That brand of good has been around since the very beginning of time, right? Then he leans in and he says, come on guys, love your enemies. Love your enemies, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything in return. And you're ready for this next part? This is when people put down their quills. This is when people gasp. This is when people are like, okay, this can't possibly be true. But if this is true, this changes everything. He said, if you are that good, if you embrace this level of good, if you choose to be good to those who mistreat you and and those who cheat on you and those who aren't good in return, if you choose to be good to those who can't offer anything in return, you will be called children of the Most High children because that's what your father in heaven is like that he is good to those who hate him he is good to those and he is good to those who mistreat even those that he loves because are you ready for this this is this was brand new for them (laughs) this might be brand new to some of us this morning this this may not be the god you were presented with as a child but he says because god is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked Wait, 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 Jesus, okay. I'll say, you're telling me that you're representing God and you're telling me that God is kind to ungrateful people and wicked people? See, that's good news because I've been ungrateful. And you know what? That's good news because I've been wicked. You see, if your view of God isn't this, you know, whether you think any of this is true or not, I mean, you may continue to walk away and reject it and and go ahead and turn the knob and, and walk away. But you just need to understand the God that you're walking away from as presented by Jesus was extraordinarily and is extraordinarily merciful to the ungrateful and to the wicked. This comes from the lips of Jesus. But this is confusing to us. And the reason this is confusing to us is because this is not how a lot of cultural Christians act. Why is it that our reputation isn't like the reputation of the God that Jesus presented 2,000 years ago? And we're going to talk about that in week three, so don't miss week three. Why Why aren't we known for being kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked? Why are we not known for being merciful to the merciless? Why are we not known as a culture for serving people who don't want to have anything to do with us? Why isn't our reputation so pristine that people are like, you know what, they're crazy. I'm telling you, they're they're just crazy. Just try to offend them. Just try to make them mad. Just try to make them angry. It's like they live in some other alternative universe. It's like there's some other kind of kingdom or something, you know, with completely different values. And I'll tell you why, because too many followers of Jesus, and I hope this isn't us, too many Christians for generations have been content to believe but not to follow. Because believing doesn't make any difference in this life. It's following. It's the act of following Jesus Uh, you know, follow me. This is why Jesus' initial invitation was simply that, follow me. Because if you follow me, you'll discover that following me will make your life better, will make you better at life. And you'll follow me because of who I claim to be. And even if at the outset, you're not sure it's all true, you will know that it's all good. You will know that it's all good. Listen to what he said next. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Whew. 
What's not to love about that? If you grew up in a version of Christianity where God was anything but merciful, I am sorry. It wasn't the original version. That's not good news. Jesus' message was good news for the unrighteous. And just so you know, there are no self-righteous Jesus followers because the original version, the original presentation, the original announcement, Jesus preaching and teaching on planet earth removed this option. Jesus' message leveled the playing field. You cannot follow Jesus and hang on to a shred of self-righteousness because at the very beginning, here's the announcement. Today, the angel said, today in the town of David, a savior has been born unto you, which means God is addressing our fundamental need for him. You need a savior. I need a savior. And your falling short may be different than mine. I'm sure it is. And, And mine might be different than somebody else's, but we all need Jesus and in that moment the playing field is just leveled there's no righteous no not one for we have all fallen short of our own standards and we've certainly fallen short of the standards of the people around us we've fallen short of that standard that we hold other people accountable to and God says and here's the good news yes you've fallen short of my standard but I have good news of great joy for everybody (laughs) I'm sending you a savior and he's been born to you and he is the Messiah, the deliverer. He is God in a body and the end of the story is foreshadowed at the outset. The personification of good did not come. You know, this is amazing. He did not come for his own good. He didn't come for his own good. He came for your good. He came for your good and mine. I love this. Jesus said, for the son of man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, for all the fall shorters, for all the, a a ransom for many. That is the good news. And he introduced and modeled this new version of good. And he told us that God is good. And then he took all of our ungood on him to create an on-ramp to a good heavenly father. And then he says to you and he says to me, he says, follow, follow me, follow. Is, Is Christianity good? Is it good for society? Is it good for the world? Good for your family? Good for you? Good for me? Luke thought so. Matthew thought so. Mark thought so. John thought so. Peter thought so. The apostle Paul eventually thought so. James, the brother of Jesus, thought so. Many, 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 many others thought so because the original version was good news, compelling news. And when it's presented in its rawest form and when it's presented in its clearest and most just uncluttered form, I'm convinced because uh, Jesus said so, because this is what the first century teaches us, that people will want the message of Jesus to be true even before they're convinced that it's true. So if you don't buy it because it never sounded good, maybe you've never heard the original. Maybe you grew up with the wrong it. (laughs) And maybe somebody misused it. And if that's the case, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry because you need to know that the people who were closest to Jesus were convinced that they had met good in a body. (laughs) 
They had met good personified because they had seen God in a body. And so they documented this story and they wrote it down because they were convinced that this was not a story of a life that was lived for a single generation, but for all generations. Not for one group of people, but for all people and all nations and every generation. And it was, in fact, good news of great joy for everybody.